welcome to Let's Talk Family Law, a podcast focusing on all aspects of family law. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. Hi, this is Carolyn Mirabile from Weber Gallagher, and we're here today for our podcast, and we have a special guest, Mark Bradford. He's a forensic accountant with Estirian. Would you like to introduce yourself, Mark? Hi, I'm Mark Bradford. Uh, I am a CPA and a CFE. CFE is a certified fraud examiner. Estirian's uh, a small group. There's like 13 or 14 of us. We do family law stuff. Um, I mean, it's litigation consulting, so damages bankruptcies, restructuring, we do some intellectual property stuff, but my focus is family law, and I've been focusing on family law since about 2001. If we have a client that perhaps some has some difficult issues in income, what could you do to help us on a case? Well, we try to, we, we look at the factors of the case. We look at if the person is self-employed versus employed by a business, the type of business, the ownership of that business, is it family-owned? Uh, we look at the complexities of their financial life, and we try to, to narrow down on what we need to look at and what we need to request in terms of a document request. And do you work one-on-one um, -on -one with the attorney and the client? How do you facilitate that relationship? It, it depends on the complexities and how much knowledge the client has. And we usually try to do some type of initial meeting, whether it's phone or in person, to go through everything. We talk about their lifestyle. Uh, the nuances of, of how they interacted, what the knowledge that they had. Um, if you have the moneyed spouse versus the non-moneyed spouse, you're obviously looking at different things. Um, but we try to, to narrow down the issues so that we're, we're doing the most effective, logical approach for that person. And so you do work with either the business owner or the financially independent spouse as well as the financially dependent spouse? Yes. Okay. And in your practice, uh, uh, do you focus on the five county uh, practice area or is there a I'm area all... where you practice? <laughs> <laughs> We're all over the place. Okay. Um, I, I've had, I've, I, I was, we had the family law thing over the weekend and I was telling people I've had cases in Erie, you know, which is obviously the opposite corner of the state. I've had stuff in Pittsburgh. I go up to Luzerne County, uh, Scranton area. Um, we, and we also have uh, an individual in our group who focuses primarily on New Jersey. So we do pretty much everything. And you would be qualified as an expert in the five-county practice before the courts as well as masters? I, and, I have been, Okay. Yes. And you also, um, with respect to any private arbitrations, have you also testified in those cases? Yes. I've, we've had many complex cases that ended up in our arbitration, um, and it's I've done that many times. Well, we, we welcome you today to our podcast, and we have a lot of issues we want to talk about in income. If you heard one of our earlier podcasts, we had a support, uh, basically a general information on support and how to file and how to collect it in Pennsylvania. And now we really want to focus on one aspect of support and basically how we determine income in a case. It's usually very important when we're starting out a case um, to learn as you said, a lot about the parties involved and uh, you know whether they're self-employed or whether they're employed with another, and perhaps the information might not be so easy to find or so obvious. So we're gonna talk about a few of those things. With, res with respect to Pennsylvania, we basically have a statute that defines what income is, and we also have rules that define what income is. And if I look at the statute, 
pretty much it's a very broad definition. It includes all sources, including wages, income from a business, retirement income, disability benefits, unemployment. And if we look at the rules, it basically mimics the support statute and goes on to say that gross income is based on at least a six-month average and includes income from any source. So if we look at that broad definition, how do we then start narrowing down what we're going to look at in determining income for a party? I, I typically prepare what, a comparison approach. So what I do is I, I do a, a schedule that shows the, the tax return in its basic form. You have your wages, you have your interest and dividends, you have your capital gains, um, you have, you have uh, business income, rental income, all the other forms of income. And, and as the, the tax return pre presents it, we come down to a net income number. And, and usually that's my starting point. And from there, we, we transition over to what's available for support. So, you, you know, a lot of small business owners might have reported income that flows through to them that's a large amount, but they might not be getting it. Or they might have a small amount, but they took distributions of a larger amount. So there's a lot of things that you need to adjust for. And we'll talk more about that as Those we go details. along. And with respect to, you mentioned the tax return, and I guess that seems to be the starting point. What other documents would you be requesting in a case to identify a person's income? I mean, we, we want to look at everything. Um, you want to look through their banking uh, statements, both if they're a business owner, you want to see both sides, the, bank, the personal and the business. Uh, we'll look at credit cards to see if there's payments coming from outside sources. Um, and if there is a business card, we're going to be looking at the business card to see what personal items might be on there. Um, and we'll, we'll go through all those different items that, that could be potential cash flow. If they're an employee that has different uh, structures of compensation, we're going to want to see all of them. And uh, will you actually identify these list of documents so the attorney can request them? Yeah, we have we have a standard document request that we start from that basically covers everything soup to nuts. And as we after we do our initial meeting that we talk about before, we narrow that down to, to what's really relevant for this particular person. Now, um, certainly when we're looking at the support guidelines, we know that they use net income in determining the actual support. And it's my understanding you really can only take mandatory deductions for net income. And what would those be identified as? I mean, mandatory deductions, I mean, you're, you're going to be looking at the, the uh, I mean, you're going to be looking at the taxes that they're paying, the things that, when you say mandatory deductions, I mean, you're, you're looking at the things that are forced, um, like the state and local taxes, are you, going down to that level or were you yeah so okay federal. yeah federal state local employment taxes the medicare social security um there's there's different things that they have to deduct for the you know to make sure that we're calculating down to the avail income available for support what do they have cash on hand okay to pay out from all right so uh, we start, you said we start with the tax return, we start looking at the basics, we identify perhaps um, we're looking at their credit cards or business accounts and bank accounts. What are you looking for in there? I'm assuming that there's some form of addbacks or maybe perks that you would be referring to. So can you identify some? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we go through we go through the different things. So when you're looking at a tax return, there's there's what's known as the input documents. So you have you have the person's W-2. The things that you're gonna get on the W-2 is is did they put money away into a 401k? Did they, did they have other compensation such as a company car 
that they that they were taxed on. Um, you know, 1099s are going to be another source of income. That's payments directly that taxes typically weren't taken out from, but that's another form of income. Um, you're going to be looking at K1s. The K1s are going to are going to show what cash items that they got. Um, if you're a 50% owner and they had a deduction that was not allowed, such as meals and entertainment, that flows through to them. That's going to be part of their technical income, but you need to see what it is. Were they, were they really uh, you know, taking clients out and doing things like that, or is this, this just their dinner every night? Um, and, and you know that, that things like that do flow through to the taxable income, so you need to, to understand if it, if it is truly something available for them that they got a benefit from that was exclusively for them or if it was something that was really business that they just got kicked back. And with, with the changes in the tax law, that's changed how we look at these things also. Um, we also look at things such as rental income. They're going to have a separate schedule for properties that they own if they're renting out commercial versus business. Um, we're going to be looking at the true cash flow there. Um, obviously, the, one of the big things to look at there is the depreciation. And what does that mean under either the tax statute or for support purposes? Well, I mean, that's usually a big item. <laughs> um, you know, somebody who has a large property, they're depreciating a lot per year. Um, and, and, you know, they, they might have the interest deduction also, if, unless it's paid for. Um, but, you know, depreciation for purposes of income available for support is added back. It's not part of the. It's not part of the total. In I mean, it's it's part of. It's a redu reduction in income for tax purposes, but it's not a cash flow item, unless there's something in there. If they're doing some type of capital improvements, or something like that, that's going to also to be be depreciated over time. We'll adjust for that. But there's different ways to look at it, and you have to make sure that we're. I mean, at the end of the day, we're really trying to get to that that key phrase: net income available for support. What is their cash flow that they have? that they can pay from. Right. What if the, um, do you also look at who owns the rental properties? Because I would assume that if perhaps um, husband owns the rental properties or a corporation that he is the officer of, that might be different than if husband and wife own the rental property. Yeah, I mean, if he's a 50% owner, and somebody external to the marriage owns other 50% or there's a, some type of variation on that, you know, there's, there's control versus non-control. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how does that work and what's kicked back to him? You know, you might have the instance where he's a 40% owner, mom and dad own another 60, but they have no involvement whatsoever. You know, and you might you might look at things differently then. So, you know, mom and dad aren't coming down and, and doing anything. It's all, it's 100% of his effort, and he's got 100% control of the cash flow. So the day-to-day -day operations, such as the collection of rent, the maintenance, being on-site property, uh, paying the bills might mm -hmm. be up to the minority shareholder, such yeah. as a son, even though um, the parents might be involved with uh, providing what would have been the capital to purchase the building. Yeah, yeah, and there, there's there's different realms. We'll talk a little bit more about minority versus majority later, but I mean, you, you have to look at that stuff too. A lot of clients might say that when you look at their income or their paycheck, that's not what they're really getting. And why is it fair that we put in all of these ad backs when they don't really see it? It doesn't, they, they're not, they don't see the actual dollars in their bank account and they can't spend it. It's, it's, and, and I understand that. <laughs> it's a hard, it's a hard thing for people to comprehend. You know, 
if you're an employee, you have a compensation package. And that compensation package has multiple facets. You, you have the actual salary. You have the portion of, of health care that the employer is paying. You have the 401k match. You might have a, a health savings account or some other high deductible plan that they're contributing money to on your behalf. Um, those are all part of the compensation structure that you get, and they all have to be identified. And I mean, the health care is, is going to be, okay, you make 100 grand a year, but your, your employer pays 100% of your health care. And it could when be a I, significant amount. And it could be a significant amount. You could be, it could be, if you have a full family and they're paying everything, that could be fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year. Or, or and if you're a single individual, that could be seven, eight, ten thousand dollars a year. Um, and that you don't have to kick in for. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously the way the tax structure works, we we look at everything there and you have to identify those things, what you're kicking in, because you have to make everybody comparable. So th that's why we do those adjustments to make sure that everybody's on the same playing field when we're calculating these things. Are you looking at the lifestyle of the parties and de determining these calculations for income? We're looking at the lifestyle of the, par the parties to determine if there's things that aren't being captured. Mm -hmm. um, you have the people who always go on vacation every year. You have you have the high income individuals with the, with the business and you're trying to match everything up. Um, I, I, I've found more things being buried in business tax returns than I can even, you know, I, I had a guy who had an 80 foot yacht with, with staff and it, he was expensing his research and development through his company. You know, you, 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 we knew the boat was there. Right. You had to find it. <laughs> we had to find it. We saw nothing in the personal expenses and you had to dig and, and, and source. And that's, that's why, you know, talking to the spouse is so, it's so significant in, in making sure that, you know, what did you do? Where did you go? How did it work? What did you see? What did you know? Um, to try to back into those things, because it's the only way that you're going to find your path to, right. to actually get to everything. Um, I guess once we do some of these ad backs that we've been uh, looking at, we have some other ones that maybe aren't so obvious. So can you perhaps explain something which might be referred to as retained earnings or dis versus a distribution? You, I mean, individuals who own companies have choices every year on, what, on how they're going to run their companies. Um, they obviously have cash flow. They have income from that cash flow. Um, and they make decisions on how much money they're going to pull out. You have some who are what I call reactionary, that I have an expense. I got to pay for it. I got to pull money. You have some people who just kind of go, you know what, I'll take what I need, everything else can stay in. Um, and then you have the others who do a strict calculation, you know, based on the income and everything, and they, they always try to keep a certain amount of cash on hand and they take what's available. Um, and and you have to you have to normalize that again, like we were talking about the person with an employee structure, you have to normalize it. So you you what we find is there's a lot of situations where somebody's going through a divorce and they get that mental, I got to cut back, I can't you know I got to pay I got to pay tax or I got to pay support based on what I'm pulling out, so I'm not going to pull out so much, um, and and you got to look at that flow and if they're if they're stockpiling cash in the business. And not pulling it out as distributions, because when we're looking at that, you, you have what what I talked about before was the taxable amount, the amount that shows up on the tax return, and then we do the net income amount, um, which is which is the the amount that they pull out. Mm -hmm. So 
just because the income's there doesn't mean they're always pulling it out. And they could be leaving it in for legitimate purposes. They could be doing an expansion. They could be, they might need cash for, uh, you know, to purchase equipment or to purchase another building or, or for, for future expansion and, and inventory purchases. You gotta, you gotta look at that stuff. If they're not pulling the money out, why? Um, and if, if they're just leaving it there to leave it there, <laughs> right. then obviously that's something that needs to be brought back into the picture and be included in, the, in their income available for support. Um, if they are doing it for something, you want to see the path. You know, are, are we are we six months out from when they started saving or are we two years out from when they started saving? Right. And if we're two years out, did they actually do it? Yeah. Um, so you're looking at different things like that. You're, you're, it, it's that logical approach of, of understanding what's going on, why, how, when, where, what. And different trends perhaps before separation as to what the parties may have been doing. Yeah, you might, you might find that before separation, he always, the person always tried to set, keep a set amount in the bank. They never went below that set amount. And now that they're separated, suddenly that amount doubles or triples. Right. You know, you don't, or, you know, you look at things like that. Um, in this area, we have a lot of executives, certainly people who uh, work for larger corporations such as the pharmaceutical industry here, and we have Comcast, and they get certain benefits such as, you know, stock options, restricted stock units, um, long-term incentives. What forms, what are these just in general perhaps, and are they considered income? It, you know, it's a fine line between income and asset. Uh, obviously, anything that was that was earned and granted prior to separation, we want to be included as an asset that's going to be divided in equitable distribution, and you do your split that way. And I, you know, we always have that argument with the clients of, you know, you're going to get more in divorce. You're going to get than, more than in support court. <laughs> than in support yeah. court, but you never know. There, there's right. been situations where it goes other way, depending on how long it goes for. Um, but you, you're better off with the cash in hand for asset versus, you know, the amount for uh, income for support. And in, and there is a transition period with that stuff, depending mm -hmm. on how far you go with your case, um, where that does change over time. And there is a difference between APL, alimony patente lite, which goes on during the proceedings and the, and the alimony you receive after the fact. Right. Um, but that's that's for another time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's a, it's a matter of identifying them, understanding them, What's the ride? Um, how long does it take for the individual to get that? Uh, we also look at other perks. Are they getting parking at work? Are they, do they have club dues? Things that they'd have to pay for otherwise. Um, making sure that we, we ca capture all of them um, and, and quantify it. Right. It sounds like there's a lot of complicated steps in um, calculating somebody's income. And I guess I also hear... You know, we have clients who will come in and they say, well, I put money in my child's 529 account or I have a trust set up for them. I'm already paying for their support. Why do I need to pay more money? That's I mean, that's voluntary. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, 529 goes to call to college. And, and, you know, in Pennsylvania, there's no requirement for a parent to pay for their children's education. And, and one of the big things about that is, is that, you know, what about the people who don't get divorced? Can their children sue them then? to get right. <laughs> to get them to pay for call you know you can't it's it's a and 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 529 is a voluntary thing you've made a decision on your own that you're going to put money aside and have it for later to pay for education and there shouldn't be an offset for that that's something that you decided to do and if you continue to do it that's on you 
Um, that's my opinion. I, I'm not sure what the court's opinion is and that, but that's the way I see it. Um, you know, you, you have the individuals who set up trusts and stuff for their children otherwise. And again, that's for the children. And that's that's usually for emancipated children, unless there's unless there's provisions in it to pay for education, to pay for you know sports or medical or, or things like that. And I I I don't know if you have, but I've yet to see a parent set that up for their own children for during the marriage. Right, right. It's usually grandparents setting that up. Right. And, and obviously, you want to look at that stuff later. But you know, support on all levels is based on income. It's not based on anything else. Right. Um, um, so speaking of trust, uh, sometimes people will come into a support case and, and they say to us, well, every year um, my wife has gotten trust income paid and, you know, that's that's her income. She gets that every year from her aunt. And then sometimes we also get discussions where perhaps one of the spouses got a gift every year. Well, every year at Christmas, our parents give us 20000 in gifts. Um, each and you know that's income. I want that included. What are the responses with respect to whether it's trust income or income from a gift? I mean, trust income is income. Um, you you want to look at the trust documents. You want to see how it's formed, what its assets are, and how it's run. Um, I, I have a case right now with a trust. Um, the individual that I'm representing is one of thirteen cousins that all feed off this trust that's based on real estate in a major city, you know, multiple commercial properties that, that, you know, the money that flows off this, this, these entities gets distributed and they, they have a set calculation that whatever, you know, that calculates the income for the year and they do a calculation that comes up with what each, each cousin gets mm -hmm. and then they get their distribution. There's no real variability there. Um, and that's Much that's less subjective and it's, it's less subjective yeah. yeah and that's the and we include that as income available for support there's no mm -hmm. question there you have you have other trusts that we've seen where it's it's ebbs and flows and ups and downs and and if bobby wants more money this year bobby can take more and hold he'll, he'll do less in another year and it, it's it's very subjective um and that's that gets a little bit more complicated and then you have to go back and look at the trends and and maybe normalize it to say you know what bobby took it too much last year bobby took too much five years ago you know and if he didn't do that we see that everybody else gets 20 percent or something like that right we gotta you gotta say okay bobby should be getting 20 percent for the next five years mm -hmm. based on based on historical stuff and what everybody else is doing. So you got to look at it different ways there too. So there, there, there's different types of trusts, different types of structures, and you need to identify them. Whereas you got the other side of things, which is the gift that we talk about. Right. Um, nobody can make mom and dad continue to give that gift every mm -hmm. year. <laughs> you Especially know. after divorce. Yeah. Especially, they're not, they're not giving Bobby a gift every year. If he, if he did wrong to their daughter, right. Um, or, or they're not together. I, I, I'm not going to insinuate mm -hmm. who did what, but, um, you know, nobody's going to force mom and dad to continue that gift and you can't count on that gift. Um, and typically we don't include those gifts. We'll identify them. We'll say, you know what, past five years or whatever trend we're looking at, mom and dad or aunt and uncle or, or grandparents or who, you know, great aunt gave so much a year and this is how it works. And it is what it is. It's identified, it's acknowledged. And, and perhaps that might be something for discussion in the divorce to show lifestyle or perhaps the yeah. parties lived a certain way that they would not have been able to had they not received the gifts 
or even just for the purchase of certain items that, again, the parties may not have been able to afford had they not received the yes. gift. Yes, and that's, I mean, the different states have different methods. I, I use, I'll use New Jersey as an example. They look more at what you're spending every year, right. mm -hmm. whereas, whereas Pennsylvania is strictly on income. Right. You know, so there's other states that might have a different approach to that. And that's um, interesting, too, to look at, because sometimes the court will say, well, I might make all this money, but I live a very thrifty life. Yeah. So why is it that um, I should be imputed these significant earnings? But if you look at our our actual um, spending, it's very uh, it's very nominal compared to what I'm earning. And, and you see that. And I've seen that over the years. And, and I've had cases in Jersey where you have a person making a million dollars a year. You know, God help them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great position to be in. But they're spending 100, 150. But they still find a way to normalize it for the savings component. So, you know, it, whereas Pennsylvania, they're just going to strictly look at that that million dollars a year and do a calculation. And it is what it is. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had a client here in the city a couple of years ago. He was just flabbergasted. You know, he made a lot of money and he spent almost all of it. And he's like, how can they make me pay support when I have almost nothing left at the end of the day? Right. And I had to explain to him. I'm like, well, it's up it's up to you that you're going to, to Marrakesh and you're going <laughs> to South America and you're going you're you know, he's traveling almost every other month doing some right. type of vacation. I'm like, mm -hmm. you, you know, you have this this opulent home on Rittenhouse Square. You have all this stuff. You have a choice every month on how you're going to spend this money. <laughs> and the court's saying that you have to put some of it aside for your kids. And, and our court does not look at the expenses of the party. Exactly. In determining child support or determining the APL, they don't look at expenses of the parties or the lifestyles that they were living during the marriage. It's not considered. Um, so that is something that clients have to be aware of, that they're assigning this income and whether they are someone who make a, makes a lot of money and choose to be frugal with it or someone who makes a lot of money and spend it all, they're going to treat them all the same. Exactly. And I think that's this fairness. Mm -hmm. It really is at the end of the day because it, 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 the kids don't have control. The kids need to be taken care of. There, there's a level of there's a standard and you have a lot of spouses who want to penalize, you know, spouses who have the access to the money, have the cash flow and want to penalize on some level the opposing spouse and right. the kids are caught in the middle. And it's just not fair. And what about someone who does end up going through this whole analysis and perhaps they get a large support award that they're going to now have to pay. Do you see people where they might, you know, reduce their earnings purposely or perhaps lose their job? And what happens in that kind of case? We do. We do. And, and, and you see it. Uh, people do, you know, they do things to alter their income. They, I, 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 I'll give the example. I had an individual with multiple businesses. Uh, one of them, one of the locations that actually provided a lot of the cash flow to the parties, sustained a major loss. They, they had an incident in the building and it was shut down and, and this person decided not to do anything. <laughs> you know, she just let the business die and she actually went out and started a new business in a new area doing a new thing that was kind of complementary to what she had going on for everything else. And that new business suddenly became non-marital. I mean, yeah. obviously, there was cash flow associated with it, but it was in the startup phases. You don't mm -hmm. get the she, – she let a business die that had been around for 20 years, was stable, consistent. Um, 
and then started this new thing and and she had a massive drop in income from it right. it, it was almost half a million dollars a year it was i mean she was getting more than enough to sustain herself but that's a that's a major effect on on what's available to pay for support mm -hmm. um and it people do that and when they do that they if, if it's voluntary you have the situation where the person person just quits their job outright or maybe they're underemployed purposefully um you know yeah you, you have the doctor who's capable of doing great things and decides you know what i don't want to work so much anymore I, i'm going to go down to 20 percent or 50 percent or whatever um and and there's there's cases like that where the court will step in and say you know what that's that's on you um we're going to assign an earning capacity based on what you were doing and because you're more than capable of going back to 100%, you're more of more than capable of having, I mean, for that person who had the business loss, it probably wouldn't have taken much for them to, to clean up everything, get it running. They, they had downtime. They had insurance that was going to cover the loss period to make them whole. Um, but they just decided not to do it. And the court doesn't look fondly on that. Right. Yeah. It sounds like that there's a lot of issues here where your help would certainly be warranted and can, you know, help a client in either identifying income um, or identifying what they need to do to calculate the income. Mm -hmm. uh, we also had briefly touched upon retirement assets and some people have to uh, participate in the retirement plan, such as teachers, members of a union. And um, normally those types of deposits um, are deducted from the income and calculating net income. But what about if there's a voluntary um, voluntary contribution through private employment of a retirement plan? And what about either, is there a difference between employees contributing or employers contributing to that plan? Um, you know, mandatory stuff is mandatory stuff. They have no choice in the matter. That build up an asset during the marriage um, that's gonna be divided and they don't have a say in it going forward. So they can't suddenly say, you know what, I need more cash flow, I'm gonna dial back on that and, and replace it. They don't have a choice, it's typically not included. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the other side of things is you have the 401k, uh, you know, that people contribute every year. And we, we always include that, that's something that you see on the tax, on the, the W-2 statement. Um, and that would be the employee contribution. That'd be the employee contributions. And, and if you get the year-end pay stub, you'll also see the employer contributions mm -hmm. also. And that we typically include that. Not all, not all counties mm -hmm. choose to include the, the company match as income, but we usually identify it and, and keep track of it so that we know all the components. Because right. um, that, that did build an asset during the marriage. And it is, as, as we were talking about before, compensation packages. You know, there, there's multiple components to your compensation package, and that's, that's one of them. Um, I, I had an individual who just changed jobs. He went from a company that had a 5% match to a company that was matching 15% of what you put in. Right. It's a big change. It's a lot. Significant. <laughs> yeah, but he, he got his, when he changed jobs, he made sure that everything was calculated down so that he got enough of a pay bump to compensate him for mm -hmm. that. Um, so you you. you People do, when you're in that industry, you, there are ways to come about and you have to bring those two people down to the same level. And that's one of those things with the company match of the 401k that you do that. Right. Well, I do appreciate all your help today in helping us understand the Support Act. Is there anything else that you want to add in general? I, I mean, it's, it's, this stuff can be complicated. It's, right. There's a lot of people out there that it's, it's not 
it's not that complicated. Mm -hmm. You don't, I mean, you know, looking at a 401k and a 401k match, you don't need somebody like me for that. Right. You know, the, the basic stuff. Um, but when you get into the novelties of, of the stock options, RSUs, the person with a company that, that has high cash flow or complicated cash flow, it can't even, it might not even be high cash flow, right. but it might be, be complicated. complicated. You know, we, we see all types of things from the guy with a small construction shop that does a lot of cash business mm -hmm. to a small business that, you know, you know, some type of store, that bar, restaurant right. that does cash flow. You know, there's there's complicated stuff, and and you you might be doing everything above board, and everything might be fine. You might not have complications, but you might have that that other type that it's it's not easy. Right. <laughs> and somebody needs to dig in and say, you know what, this is what's really happening. You know, you you see it. We see it all the time. I right. you see it all the time. It, we're we're in the realm of of the the oddballs. In terms of it's not it's it's a small percentage of the population, but you have the people who report income of forty to fifty thousand dollars a year. They have a million dollar house with no mortgage. They're driving the BMWs and the Mercedes. They got the shore property. They got the shore house, and you're like, how does this? The kids, yeah. the kids in private school, and you're right. like, how does this work? Right. It can't. It just it can't. can't. And and you got to figure it out. And that's what we're here for. Well, we appreciate your time today, and uh, we we are glad that you were able to be a guest with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Let's Talk Family Law. We hope you join us next month for another episode. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.